WGD People Who Inspire podcast was started as a forum by which we could speak, educate, and encourage people around safe culture through diversity, equity, and inclusion practice. In a world where I can see divisiveness is on the rise, and I'm told that fake news spreads seven times faster than the truth on social media, I want to ask people to reconnect to that which goes beyond propaganda and connect to that part of ourselves that remembers that each human is valuable. Here we highlight the many, many inspirational voices in our world who are striving to move us in a direction of a safer culture overall. Um, it's so good to see you. So today we're meeting with Steve L, who is a recovery mentor. He's a sober Black Indigenous Canadian with a unique perspective on racism, equity, and rising above. Now, Steve, it's always so great to talk to you. Welcome. How are you doing today? Hi, Autumn. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm doing well. I'm excited to uh, share my experiences with you all. You know, and I just love, you know, we've known each other for a long time, my friend. Like, and uh, and we've been we've been journeying around. And last I last we saw each other, we were we were in Vancouver um, years ago because I've since moved onto the island and started the Women Who Inspire conference and done all these other strange things and been asked to step into this Pride Society president role and you know really been um, getting back into my own Indigenous heritage and. Uh, learning how truly important you know equity diversity and inclusion is and not only equity diversity and inclusion but safe equity diversity and inclusion and this part of this podcast is to really talk to people about that and so tell us about your unique perspective i know that you know you have an, a unique perspective with the way you grew up um can you tell us a bit about that um so uh First of all, congratulations on all of your uh, recent accomplishments as you moved to the to the island, uh, Autumn. I'm really proud of uh, of you stepping up and uh, you know um, helping to do this uh, much needed work. Uh, uh, so, um, with that being said, um, I am I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, in the late '70s. Um, my mother, I was born to um, an Indigenous mother. Um, she's Métis. Uh, she was born on the Wolf Lake settlement in Alberta. Um, uh, she was married at 17. Um, at that time, she had nine children. Um, yeah. And uh, she had met uh, my father, uh, who was a black man. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, they were dating for, for, you know, however long, uh, you know, and then they had, he had, uh, left to actually come out here to Vancouver. And after he had left, uh, she found out she was pregnant with me. Ah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so at that time, um, my, uh, our mother was, uh, she, she had a very rough childhood as I found out later in life. Happens to um, so many Métis women, honestly. Yes. Like I'm a Métis woman. It happened to me too. Yes. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was uh, at that time in her life in 1977. She was uh, only. She had nine children. Uh, she was only raising uh, two of my sisters. Wow. Uh, wow. The rest, All of them had been 
um, well, uh, so uh, some of my siblings were, were in foster care. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, some of my siblings were being raised by aunt and uncle, yeah. uh, some by grandpa and grandma. Um, you know, uh, she, our mother was pregnant again. Uh, she went to social services for help. Uh, that's actually right around the time in Alberta where they had the, um, the 60s scoop. It was very prevalent in Alberta right. at that time. Right, right. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, this is Canadian history. You know, we think in yes. Canada, oh, we don't, we don't have this racial problem. We don't have this thing, you know. But when you, when you learn about Indigenous history, you learn about these things, we have this problem. You know, we are not yes. exempt from having to think about racism, for sure. No. Um, for those that don't know what the 60s scoop was, uh, it was an effort by the Canadian government uh, that if a social worker, uh, you know, had an encounter uh, with a Indigenous woman um, to try and get her to give her children up for adoption or into foster care, um, this was all part of the Canadian government's uh, effort for uh, to um, have cultural genocide of the Aboriginal people um, to, to erase, uh, which, which is the same kind of thing that they did through the uh, residential school system. Wow. wow. Um, so, and, and I think wasn't the, the point of that was like assimilating the, the, you know, what they would have called Indians or natives or whatever, you know, the savages to, to white culture. Yes. Yeah. That wow. To, to whitewash wow. the the culture of the the Aboriginal people here. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. Uh, in Canada, and this was all done by the Canadian government. Um, so my mother um, felt like she had no other options uh, except to give me up for adoption, uh, and I was adopted into um, a, a wonderful uh, Caucasian uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed man and. Uh, a wonderful Caucasian blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman um, raised me. Uh, they adopted me, and at three days old, uh, I went home with my mother and father. Wow, um, wow, yes. wow, my friend. And you see, now this is the thing, and I think this is why, you know, well, this, this, is, this is part of why, I mean, one part of why I called you is just because I love you, and I know you to be just such a, a genuinely good person through to your soul you know anytime we talk i just i feel as though you know even if you're stressed out or upset you're you're stressed and upset about something that isn't sitting right with you on an ethical realm and so you're moving in this direction you're trying to move into this direction of all of us treating each other with dignity and respect and having a world that's safe for all of us to live in you know what i mean so here you are you're a black indigenous person of color like you hold the whole BIPOC community <laughs> right in in your in your soul you know and and I'm a white presenting you know only now coming into my Métis culture because it was really um like it, I grew up in a situation where um the the white men including the men that I grew up around would make jokes about hitting the, as like I said, as they would call them Indians, right? 
back in the day, hitting Indians with their doors and killing as many of them on their way to town as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm listening to these stories as I'm also hearing my, my mom look at herself in the mirror and, and, and unbraid her long brown hair and say, I can't go out of the house like this, I look too Indian. So she's hiding her ethnicity. She's hiding her culture. She's hiding that which she would have known through her own mother, who passed away at a very young age after a lengthy bout of, you know, uh, uh, you know she passed away at, I believe, 42, after a lifetime of, of abuse from her mm. white husband, you know? Mm. And so, here we have it. And then that sort of flies through the generations. Like my mom experienced the same thing. I experienced, you know, similar effects in myself. And so, you know, then you've got this, this um, multi-generational stuff that comes out. So, you know, here, so that's my experience. So then there you are growing up a black indigenous person of color with these, what I understand, these beautiful, loving, kind, blue-eyed, white-skinned people. And it becomes really hard to think about hating any given race at that point. Yes. Uh, My parents were wonderful, courageous, kind-hearted, loving people. I I shouldn't say in a past tense, they're still with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, wonderful people that didn't give a damn about what anybody else said because they did get flack from several of their family members, you know, um, they even, my mother had her uncle tell her that she didn't think it was right that they were adopted, that they adopted a a black baby, Um, you know, and, uh, you know, my, my, my dad's sister told him that she, he didn't think that she didn't think it was right either, Um, you know, and, and my parents, you know, um, just courageously told them to mind their own business, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I was raised in, uh, you know, small town, small town, Alberta, you know, right. with with a lot of racism. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was the first black kid that lived on my street. Wow. I was wow. the first black kid that went to my school. Wow. Um, sure you know, that. like um, my dad, um, when I was little, uh, when I got to a certain age, uh, he actually got his barber who had never cut black hair before. Yeah, uh, you know, and God rest his soul, Casey. Uh, but Casey, you know, went out of his way and he learned how to cut my hair. Wow! You know, you know and uh, I'm spectacular. Yeah, I'm. I was. I'm. I'm very sure I was the first uh, uh, black person's hair that he cut. You know, and uh, yeah. yeah, you know, a lot of firsts in my community. Um, so obviously, I didn't have um, you know any black people in my life growing up. Um, when I was, uh, I think it was eight or nine, we had a black family that moved in, a mother with her two children that moved in uh, down the street from us. Yeah. And uh, and I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, when I was growing up over there um, because I didn't really have any, uh, any other black people that I could talk to about, you know, um, the different things and the different, the way I felt different and the differences and, and that, and, and I kind of internalized all that. I, I know like as a little, a little boy, 
I used to love, I don't know if you're, if anybody else remembers this TV show, but there was two TV shows. There was Different Strokes, yep. which was about two black kids being um, raised by a white family. And there was also the show Webster. Right. And I loved both of those shows growing up because it, I, I saw other families with that same experience that I was having. Um, I didn't know how to, how to deal with any of my feelings. I didn't want to talk to my I didn't know how to talk to my parents about you know um, the different uh, you know racism that I felt uh, as a kid growing up I didn't have any really other black people to talk to about my experiences um, you know I do you I have turn- um, you know do you at that age I don't know about you, but for me, I experienced discrimination, especially around economic stuff and just being that family, you know, we were that family. And so um, I didn't have words for it. I didn't have words for why I was being treated differently. I didn't have words for, you know, I didn't even know what really it meant to be bullied. I didn't really know any of the reasons that I was experiencing the cruelty that I was experiencing. What I knew was that somehow it was directed at me or what I felt genuinely was that because somehow it was directed at me that there must be something innately wrong with me Yes, that they directed and, and, at this, this to me. Yes. And, th- and that's why I was, uh, that's exactly how I dealt with it. It was, yeah. there was, yeah. I always felt like there was something wrong with me, you know, um, people used to always continually tell me how lucky I was right. growing up. Right. Oh, you're so lucky that, you know, you're, you've been adopted by these people, right? Like you're so lucky. Right. And, uh, and I never realized until I was an adult, what they really meant was that, uh, you know, because they basically assumed that my quality of life would not be the same had not my white parents not adopted me. Right. Uh, right. right. But And I also always thought to myself, being adopted, that my mother put me up for adoption, that there must be something wrong with me. Right. And I, right. Right, and I didn't yeah. Ha- and, I, and I didn't have anybody to talk to about this because I, you know, because people continually kept telling me that I was lucky. So, you know, I didn't want, want I didn't feel comfortable talking to my parents about this stuff. So I internalized all of this stuff growing up. I didn't know how to deal with my emotions or my feelings. Um, and and I and I actually was a, a real little nerd <laughs> as a boy, <laughs> and, and and I discovered books, and books yeah. were a way for me to kind of um, turn off the outside world uh, and escape to this other world, where I didn't have to think about being the only black kid in school. Um, how you know, in grade two, uh, the teacher made me set my desk out in the hallway because a, a, another little girl called me an N word in grade two and then she sat me out in the hall while she talked to the class and I remember just feeling really singled out and not and I didn't know you know I don't think I ever even told my parents about that you know I don't uh I don't think uh I even told my parents ever about that but but I remember that you know and I internalized all this stuff and I didn't know how to deal with it and I turned to books and then when I was a teenager I turned to alcohol and alcohol and then later drugs well and see we were talking in um in one of our most recent podcasts um, you know 
know, episodes is that we really need to forgive ourselves for the, oh gosh, I'm, I'm really quite emotional thinking about you, my friend, out in that hallway being singled out um, in that way. Thank you. But we, we talk about, you know, we don't, we can't sort of go back and have better skills, right? We need to forgive ourselves for our coping mechanisms for the times we didn't have any other coping mechanisms and we really do our best with these things, you know? And so you're a, a child, you could have been going home and ripping up your parents' house, you know, doing all this sort of stuff, but instead, what are you doing? You're looking at books to try and, and, and help yourself feel better. You know, that's a wonderful coping mechanism for such a young individual. Having yes. said that, those are traumas, you know, just because you weren't, you know, well, for myself, and I know we've had these discussions, because I, I experienced a lot of violence growing up, like a lot of very serious violence. And I've had people in the recovery realms, we're both recovery mentors. And I've had people in the recovery realms say to me, oh, well, you know, my trauma isn't like yours, so I should just suck it up. Well, trauma doesn't, you can't compare trauma, mm -hmm. right? As I was being, you know, beaten up for being, you know, born, <laughs> you were being set out in the hallway and, and these things affect us eternally, you know, and which is why I advocate for trauma informed recovery practices these days, because those are real traumas and those traumas then really make us quite uncomfortable in our own bodies. And then we try to leave those bodies through first for you, maybe books, second for Maybe is that your experience that that's you felt like you needed to leave yourself? Yeah, um, I wanted to escape from reality because yeah. I didn't know how to deal with with my feelings and my emotions, and I didn't I didn't have anybody that in my life that I felt like I could talk to about this. And uh, that would these, these yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just internalized all of this stuff. Uh, and in order to not think about it, you know, I, I, I escaped into this fantasy world of books. Like I, like I, I, I can honestly say I read books alcoholically as a child. Yeah. <laughs> I really did. I, you know, like, um, like the Hardy Boys, <laughs> there's literally like hundreds of their books yeah. that they put out. And I, and I read probably at least half of them. Wow. You know, I would read whole series and I would just always have my nose in a book. Um, because I, I realized that that was a way for me to not think about, you know, just reality. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. then what happened is you progressed into alcohol. Yes. So, you know, in short, because we don't want to spend too much time on, on that, but in short, like, you, how did you get from, from, from books to alcohol and then that sort of led you in a, in a direction that, that wasn't very constructive, I understand, right? Yes. Um, so once I discovered alcohol, I realized that that was another way for me to escape from reality. Um, and I started using it on a regular basis. I did the uh, same, yeah. Yeah, and I would, I would, um, I didn't, I didn't realize when I was young that I thought everybody was blacked out when they drank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently that's, that's not the truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was seeking now. oblivion. I remember when, yes. when I drank differently than other people drank, you know, when I drank, yeah. I, I was seeking oblivion. I was seeking yes. not to be anywhere near my own reality, my own self, you know? 
Yeah. And I didn't have better coping mechanisms. You know, they weren't teaching me that in the foster care. They weren't teaching me that in the violent episodes that I grew up in. You know, I didn't have any other skill. And when I, I discovered alcohol and then drugs, I was like, wow, this is, this is good. You know, this, I don't have to feel, I don't have to feel yes. this pain. Yeah. 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 yeah books. Uh, so alcohol and drugs gave me that same way to escape reality that books did. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they were like my new, my new books. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, throughout my teens and my twenties and my very early thirties, uh, you know, they were everything to me. They were my, they were my best friend. They were my lover. They were everything, you know, they were my constant companion. Um, you know, and when we're drugs. addicted, it does become a, um, a way of life, you know? Yes. It, it encompasses everything. Like even I remember all my relationships were, you know, were, were, were connected through drugs and alcohol. Like that's what we did, you know? Yes. We, we drank, yes. we, we got stoned. Yeah. We messed ourselves yeah. up really. Yeah. Yep. You know, and um, you know, I would find, you know, as I, I, you know, my life got darker and smaller. Uh, I would seek out people that used and drank like me, mm-hmm. because then it then it seemed normal. Yeah. You know, yeah. and if anybody said, "Steve, you know, you're sure partying a lot." Yeah. I I'd say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as Autumn. Like Autumn's <laughs> really got the problem. Like she's, you know, out of hand that else. one. <laughs> and they'd say, you know what, Steve, you're right. Right. Yeah, she is a mess. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah, you're she's fine. a mess. Yeah. You're, you're not nearly as bad as she is. You know. Well, well, I appreciate that I could be of service to you in this way. <laughs> so, so if we fast forward from comparing yourself to me and and you know being being not quite as messy as I was, <laughs> so we fast forward to like here we are today you're this wonderful recovery mentor. Like, how did you get from, I can't be in my body. I'm going to drink. I'm going to, I'm going to read these books. So I don't think about anything Then I'm, then next thing you know, you're addicted and you're, you're, you're messy, but not as messy as me. And then somehow now you're here and this wonderful recovery mentor, what happened? Um, so I got sober um, about 11 years ago. My parents had an intervention for me. Um, I ended up moving back home into my parents' basement uh, when I was 29. Much Gosh, to my, I love your parents. They're much just to my shame. Yeah. They are. They are. Shout out to my to my mom and dad. Um, you know, and um, they got a front row seat to to the way I was living my life back then. And thank yeah. God they did. And and they uh, they offered to um, to get me into a treatment center. Oh, and, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, and that treatment center uh, saved my life. You know, it introduced me to a twelve-step program, and uh, you know, I've um, thank God I've uh, I've stayed sober ever since. Uh, I went to that treatment center, and you know, last month I so I celebrated eleven years. So. Oh, you are incredible! You are you are absolutely. I'm so proud of you, my friend. I'm so proud of you, and it's really just been such a wonderful recovery journey that, that we've gotten to take together. Like I, I went to 12 step two. Now I understand that 12 steps doesn't, doesn't work for everyone, you know, yes, but it right. is where, it is where I sobered up 
And, you know, I believe these days I, I, I mentor and coach for something called the She Recovers Foundation and I do a, a bunch of other things. And, um, but yeah, like it was, it was the thing that got me clean and sober, you know, 16 years later, I would have to uh, address my PTSD, which was a whole other realm of recovery. But I sure found that, that helpful for, for quitting drugs and alcohol, for sure, you know. And then I got to meet so many wonderful people. Like, I think that's one of the things they're doing really well is that peer support. We need some sort of belonging, you know, and without yes. it, we're going to go back to what we, what we were before, yeah. 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 Well, it's, you know, like kind of one of the overall themes of my story is, is not feeling like I fit in or that I belong. Right. You know, and um, in in uh, twelve step meetings, uh, I feel like I belong. I, I've I've found my tribe. You know, That's I found fabulous. my I found my people, and you know, and I found uh, people that accept me and love me for who I am. You know, um, my sponsor. Um, I've had the same sponsor for for over eleven years now, and I mean, he knows everything about me, and uh, he loves He's and a accepts me. Person too. Yes, yes, he is. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I've been able to talk about things that, you know, I've been able to talk about that thing that happened to me in grade two. I, uh, you know, I've been able to talk about childhood trauma. I've been able, um, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets, right? You know, yeah. and that's the wonderful thing that, that recovery does for us is, uh, you know, as it frees us from that bondage of, of self and fear, uh, you know, and uh, resentments, and uh, you know, we, we we can we can we can live our lives in in this miraculous way, right? And I don't need alcohol and drugs to um, you know enhance my 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 life today. I'm okay. Right. With, I'm okay with reality, right? Yes, which is yeah. super fabulous. And you're you're. For myself, I'm, I'm far more okay with myself, too. Now, this is the thing that, that you know, um, you had said congratulations for these things that you're doing, for stepping into this advocacy role and, you know, these sorts of things. Well, I have to say that hasn't been easy. You know, certainly that hasn't been easy. And what I found is that, you know, I've been doing recovery for 23 years. And one of the things that, that we're taught to do is we're taught to wake up in the morning and ask to be made of highest service. And so we ask to be, you know, I've been, I've been waking up for, you know, over two decades asking to be made of highest service. And then I've been walking in that, in that walk, you know, and I've been, I've helped hundreds of people get clean and sober. I've helped people through trauma and, and, um, and, and survive domestic abuse and start their own businesses and do all this. I've had an opportunity to become this person, you know, and still from time to time, the haters will get me still from time to time. They'll say something right, cruel, and, and it'll, it'll hit me, you know? And so I'd say of all of the things of the, of the being of highest service, it's greeting these haters of the world. It's greeting, and I don't want to call them haters. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's greeting the hatred because I think the hatred and the person are two different things. You yes. know, I think that what, when, we're, when we're feeling 
not okay with ourselves, we can look outside of ourselves to escape. And hate is one of those ways that we can look outside to escape our own reality, you know, instead of, um, you know, again, I don't have this luxury because I'm, I'm Métis. So I've got indigenous background. I've got black friends. I've got gay friends. I've got straight friends. I've got white male friends. I've got, you know, I, I, I've got so many wonderful individuals in my life that I don't have the privilege of escaping my own reality by saying, oh, well, it's those black people's fault, or it's, you know, it's the, it's the indigenous people, or it's, no, I mean, that, that doesn't, that's not a way in, in which I get to live, you know, or want to live for that matter. You know, here I am and being free of that is, is really huge. But I do, I just think, do you think that, do you think that there's a way to, to separate the behavior from the individual? Um, I like to think of those people as being sick. Yeah. Um, rather than, you know, they're, they're sick people, you know, and like, you know, how I feel sorry for, for people that are racist or homophobic or uh, anti-feminist or, you know, because their life must be so small, you know, and for them, for them to have to live their life in this like bubble of, you know, and blaming other people for, for their problems, uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, 45, um, cause I refuse to say his name, uh, has, has been brilliant at, uh, you know, basically dividing and conquering, Yeah. you know, and that's yeah. basically been, you know, his whole scheme is, uh, you know, to divide and conquer and to, to keep us divided. Uh, meanwhile, you know, he's kind of, you know, like, uh, just, doing what he wants uh yeah yeah, you know and i i don't think we need to to mention any particular leader's name either but what i i I just read you that quote before we we got onto this podcast is that i really think that you know as an as a a global society we need to rise above this sensationalist garbage whereby we're feeding people propaganda that is near, like a lot of it's setting off alarm bells that it's very close to what Hitler would say. You know, Hitler yes. um, Hitler ran these things on, um, you know, ran his propaganda and his campaigns based in racism. And I'm yes. seeing that erupt again, and it's disturbing to me. It's disturbing. And the misogyny, it's, it's very yeah. problematic, you know, and no basis so- in reality. Yes. So, uh, little known fact that that uh, forty five is actually a huge fan of Hitler. Forty uh, wow. uh, 45's first wife actually talks about his obsession with Hitler and him always having a, a, a Mein Kampf uh, and, and his autobiography, and he wanted to know all about uh, Hitler and uh, you know the different. Uh, um, uh, things that he implemented to try uh, to basically take to over get the in. world. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, he's, he's really, he's been using a lot of the same techniques. It looks like uh, a play by play to me. And it's, yeah. it's super frightening, you know, yeah. especially as someone who's, you know, an advocate for safe equity, diversity and inclusion in the world. I'm like, Whoa, that's some pretty big opposition. 
Well, that's the antithesis of, of everything that you're doing, right? Yeah. Is, yeah, it is. Know, that's he, why I'm doing is. this. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've, you know, we've come up with this, this speaking of safe equity, diversity, inclusion, you know, we've come up with this pledge as, as you know, um, yes. and we talk about advocating and connecting and looking within ourselves for where we can overcome bias. And we talk about speaking against or walking away from hate speech, you know? So, and then we talk about sharing our gifts, our time and our talents and our platforms, platforms like this to, you know, to raise that bar, to just really raise that bar and to know ourselves to be, to be that change, right? To really be the change. So, you know, two, two questions. First is, um, as a, a black indigenous person of color in this time, has this affected your mental and emotional health and well-being, and how? Oh, very much so. Uh, the state of the world right now has really affected, uh, yes, everything in me. Um, you know, thank God I'm sober is all I can say because I don't, I don't know if I would have been able to deal with um, the current state of, of the world. Um, if, if I wasn't, um, you know, like that's the thing is sobriety gives me this like um, spiritual toolbox that I can use um, to get through really anything in life. Um, and, and I've been able to use a lot of those tools in order to, 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 uh, to deal with this stuff, you know, whether it's uh, waking up on a daily basis and seeing yet another a uh, black man or child that's been killed by the police or hunted down by white supremacists or uh, somebody going on a racist rant on video yeah. or, you know, somebody speaking derogatorily about Black Lives Matter or just, uh, it's just, it's so... Upsetting. It's so much. Yeah, Upsetting. So yeah. Much. Yeah. I was at um, a murdered and missing Indigenous woman's protest just this morning. Mm. And as we were out there, some, you know, a bunch of people were driving by and they were honking their horns and putting their fists up in the air as, you know, in solidarity. And then one guy drove by and out of his window, he just said, fuck you. And, and, you know, for a moment, I felt real hatred. <laughs> and then I thought, if I, if I embrace that, I'll be no better than he is. And he's not oh. taking this away. This is, about, um, this is about the women who have gone before me and who are still dying because of racism in our yes. world, in our time. And, and I need to be able to behave above that, if that makes any sense. Yes, look at that woman uh, that just died, uh, Joyce Echaquin, uh in Quebec that died while in hospital care that recorded the racial slurs and the racism she, she heard while dying. Yeah. You know, this, this yeah. stuff is still going on today. It's still relevant. You know, it, it makes me sad and angry when people um, who think that there's no racism here in Canada 
you know, uh, I that honestly, in and of itself is racism to me, right? Like who, who? It's just like um, it's kind of similar, but it's not. It's not the same, but it's similar to a, a man saying to me, "Oh, you know, gen- gender inequality doesn't exist." What are you? What are you talking about? How would you know? How would you know? Right? Unless you've experienced. And again, it's one thing to know about racism. It's another thing to experience it wholeheartedly, yes. right? And so this this is ridiculous. And and just back to just back to Joyce here, like her family told those nurses that she was not to have morphine. And in and amongst their racial slurs, they gave her morphine, which reeks of a racist a hate act in and of itself yes um just a couple months ago autumn um a friend of mine that i used to work with years ago uh went missing um he was actually in a in a minor car crash yeah uh, driving home he was not he was sober uh he was checked into the hospital uh and they actually were similar thing happened they they he uh he was asked not to give any morphine and they gave it to him anyways. And he went into this state where he was paranoid and he thought that they were doing experiments on him. Now, a little bit of backstory on this is his mother actually worked at the hospital for 35 years until she retired. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. And this, he was a black man. Uh, so he was in this hospital. His, his parents were with him. His mother asked the staff when they were leaving, Hey, you know, he was having this manic episode and she said, will you let me know if he leaves or anything? Please keep him here. They went home to sleep. She called the next morning to check on him. The nurse told her that he had uh, discharged himself. Now he had discharged himself while on this medication and he left there. There was a video footage of him leaving in his slippers and hospital gown. And they allowed this man to leave the hospital. There in was full search, psychosis. In full psychosis. There was a search party for him for several days, uh, myself included. I helped to look for him. On uh, the fourth day, they found his body. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is not, this is, I guess you're, you're, what you're saying is this is not an isolated incident. This no. is on the news now because, because Joyce was smart enough to record the thing as yes. she was dying, you yeah. know, and, and what, um, what a selfless act, you know, there she yeah. is. She knows she's dying anyway. So she chooses to record this so that she can help those who are following her, you know, which is why we're having this conversation today, you know, and, yes. and, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. So I, as you can tell, in the shift in my voice, like I, these are emotional issues for me. You know, yes. this is a real heartfelt issue for me and for you, my friend. And so, you know, what what do you think we need to do now? Like, if you could say, there's you know, there's one or maybe two things that we can really step to. Like, I'm I I've signed the the safety, equity, and diversity, de, safe equity, diversity, and inclusion pledge. Um, I know that you're going to sign it. Um, yes. And, you know, what else can we do? Like, I'm putting these things out. I'm, I'm holding this podcast. I'm showing up to the protests. Well, if you could think of, 
you know, I know we spoke today about we have to just assess our own behavior. And we talked about Michelle Obama, who's a wonderful inspiration, you know, saying they, they go low, we go high, you know, they go low, we go high. And then also she, she just says, you know, never act in fear. Never make a decision from fear. Always make a decision from what you want to see in the world. Now I may have messed up that quote, but it's something like that, you know? And so, so from, from your place in the world, and from my place in the world, if you could, could give any advice to, to us about what we can improve on. Well, at, at the bottom of this pledge is one of my favorite sayings is be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. And I think that's, that just, just covers so much. I mean, like, you know, it used to be uh, when I was on social media, if I had seen somebody that, that wrote something racist or, you know, or, or, just something that didn't sit right with me, I would just kind of scroll past it and I wouldn't say anything. Yeah. Now, I, now I, uh, lately I've been uh, calling people out on stuff. You yeah. know, I'm, it's yeah. not enough to be just not racist. We have to be anti-racist. Yes. Right? And, yes. and so I, I'll ask people what they mean by that. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And I'll give them an opportunity to explain where, what they're, where they're coming from and what they mean by that, because I think people need to speak up. I agree. You know, you know we need, and, and whether it doesn't matter what your skin color is, what your background is, everybody has to be a part of this. I what agree. do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's the thing, right? We need to wake up our consciousness again, because we're, we're being sort of, it feels like we're, we're, we're having these, social media stuff and then we have our emotions manipulated through these sensationalist things but i wonder if we could stop and take a moment and really bring our consciousness to what it is we're saying doing and and being in the world you know what i mean and typing and sharing you know these are important things what do you think yeah yeah is that what you mean by be the change yes be the change you know um I just, you know, uh, people always, so something that's very relevant and people are talking a lot about this on social media nowadays is, is, um, you know, how, you know, for years before now, people were saying, I can't believe uh, people let the Holocaust happen. They just stood by and they didn't do anything, right? And we can't make that same mistake again. So yeah. again, be the, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, you know, yeah, and let go um, of that complacency and and, yeah. and get to it. There's some big changes happening. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, even if it makes people uncomfortable, um, you know, I ask, I, I I will comment because otherwise, I just again, I don't want to go back to that internalizing that I lived with for so long, right? So I just I have to speak my mind. And you know, I've actually lost friends that I've had over ten years. Me too. Right? Who who I can't, you know that we're just of the mindset, you know, oh, well, all lives matter. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what? I can't be friends with you anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I do agree that all lives matter, but that's, you know, that's so disrespectful to the Black Lives Matter movement. You know? Well, and this is just the thing. So, so, so people get so very confused about this thing. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they speak as though for us to say, Black Lives Matter, we're saying 
you know, other lives don't matter. No, we have to say black lives matter because they're not being treated as though they matter. And when you respond with all lives matter, you negate the very point. Yeah, it's one of the best analogies that I've seen online is, hey, my house is on fire. Yeah. You know, well, my house matters too, but you know what? Your house isn't the one on fire right now. Exactly. Uh, Black people are being killed at an exponential rate right now in the United States. And I mean, this is, these are children we're talking about, you know, some as, I think some as young as like 10 years old, you know, and and basically people have had enough. People have had enough, you know, and, and something has to be done. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm all for the, be the change you want to see in the world, right? Like, we've got to stand up for ourselves. Yes, yes, yes. We do have to stand up for ourselves. And it seems like you're really, you're really taking to heart the part of the pledge that says speak against or walk away from hate speech, destructive communication, and other oppressive behaviors. And I think if we did that, it's not always safe to speak up against a, a bully no. or someone who's behaving with hatred or oppression or whatever. And as a matter of fact, sometimes it's, it's so not safe that it's recommended against it, but yeah. we can not, we can at least disengage from giving them an audience from doing, you know, from participating, from elevating them in any way, shape or form. You know, I, I think that that in and of itself is a choice and an action. Yes, I have I have unblocked and unfriended. Uh, I can't tell you, like at least probably over twenty people on on, on Facebook uh, yeah. over the last year and a half. Yeah, uh, you know because I've asked them what they mean by their racist comments. Yeah, right, and then I've responded. I, I also find that when people are especially talking about Black Lives Matter when they're it's almost like, oh yeah, whoops! I forgot I have a black friend, and it's oh, making yeah. me uncomfortable. It's making me uncomfortable that that he's seeing what I wrote, right? Because I will ask them specifically what 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 do they mean by that, yeah. and ask them to explain themselves, right? You know, and uh, it's, when you when you put a face on racism, I think it's harder for people to kind of. Uh, continue to engage in that in that type of mindset or behavior, right? Especially if I'm their, already their friend, and yeah. then I'll, I will be in their face and be like, you know, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Right? To remember that there's a a human feeling being behind yes. those words you're tossing around as though they don't matter. Yep. Yeah. 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 Wow. wow. I, I I encourage everybody listening to this podcast. Um, to always speak out against racism and to ask what people mean by that. Um, That's a really good technique, actually, that that asking the question. Because, you know, so often what I find is that I want to make a point. So rather, and, and if that point is you're being a racist or you know, you're this or you're that, all of a sudden people get into their own defense mechanisms, right? And some, and, but sometimes with that, that element of curiosity, so what actually do you mean by that, right? 
do you actually mean like I've heard a doctor describe racism as a very serious mental illness, right? To believe that the pigment of your skin changes anything about who you are as a person is is so absurd that she describes it as a very serious mental illness, right? So then when we ask people to self-reflect, what do you actually mean by that? Mm-hmm. That's a powerful question. I've, um, so just this last, uh, in the summertime, um, my uncle passed away, uh, God rest his soul. And I went, I flew to, back to Alberta and at the, um, the gathering after the funeral, my white adoptive uncle wanted to ask my opinion on Black Lives Matter. I always kind of take a breath when, when, <laughs> whenever this question, because I know Ooh, that it can go. That's a heated question go, in Alberta. Yes, it's yeah, going to go yeah. one of two ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, he told me that he didn't believe that white privilege was real, and which I laughed at, oh, uh, wow. because because uh, you know I, I said to him, I, I'm like. Uh, so he's, he asked me what I thought about the Black Lives Matter movement, and I told him that I thought it was a positive thing that these people were standing up for equality. Yeah. And I said, how can you find fault in that? Yeah. Uh, and he, the second thing he said was he didn't think that white privilege was real. And he also asked me if I've actually experienced, if I, he said, you, well, you haven't experienced any racism in Canada, have you? And I laughed <laughs> at that. Uh, Wow, wow. Yeah, wow. I people could see that. my face right now. It's like this big surprise, like, oh my gosh, look yeah. on it. But and wow. he was he he was being serious. He he was being absolutely serious. He said, You haven't experienced racism. And I and I said, Uncle, I said, I've I've experienced racism on a, on pretty much a daily basis. Yeah. And I said, just the fact that you don't think that there's racism is white privilege. Right. Just, just the fact that's that the you perfect don't, example of it. You've yeah. never experienced it, so you don't think it exists. That's white yeah. privilege. That's white privilege, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, I heard the perfect analogy on that one. It, it was uh, to a worm in horseradish. The world is horseradish. Mm. You know, so we see mm. only from our we see from our perspective. Yes. So he's I, I, he's seeing from his white privilege perspective never having experienced racism, so then it doesn't exist. I wish that we could advance VR to the point where a person could basically literally walk a mile in my shoes. Yeah. Right, and to live, you know, if I had like a little camera and I just went through my day-to-day life, um, you know, or even if we went so far as to do a social experiment for me to walk, to, uh, sorry, for me to walk into a store dressed in a particular way yeah, uh, and then to have uh, uh, someone that's not BIPOC to, to walk into that same store in the same clothing and to see, to show exactly how we're differently or treated. I oftentimes get followed by security. Um, so, and what I've started doing now is uh, the last time that this happened, I actually confronted the guy. Wow. I confronted the security guard and I said, what are you doing? I said, yeah. why are you following me? Oh, oh, I'm not following you. And I said, yes, you are. Yeah. You've been following me in this store for the entire time that I'm here. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I actually went so far as to, to talk to the cashier and to, to tell the cashier that this guy was racially profiling me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I made a scene in the store and I called it out. Well, good for you. That took yeah. real courage, my friend. You know, I am so proud to call you friend. And I'm so proud of the work that you do, not only to, to really help yourself and to be the best person that you can be, but also to help some other really struggling people in the world. You know, I know that you're helping people in recovery all the time. And I just want to say, it's an honor to know you. It's an honor to walk this path with you. And it's an honor to do everything we can to be the change together. Steve, you're, you're a fantastic person, a fantastic friend. And as I said, it's, it's an honor to know you. So do you, want be, do you want people to be able to contact you or reach out to you after this podcast if they can relate or, or want to talk more about these things? I know that we have the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Pledge and that we have a coalition, an Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Coalition meeting um, every, every second Thursday. So, but is there a way that they can reach you if they would like to? Sure. Uh, they can send me an email. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know if you want to just include that someplace or if you want me just to give yeah, it out Yeah, if you now. could just give it out now, that would be great. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Uh, so my email is uh, my first name and my last name at hotmail.com. And that's S-T-E-V-E-E-L-L at hotmail.com. And that's my first name and my last name. There's three E's in that email address, and we can uh, we can communicate that way. If you're if you want to share um, your experience with me, or if you have any more questions or concerns, um, I and I I will not be responding to if anybody has anything negative that they want to share. That I'm just I will I'm not even gonna. Um, no, 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 again, speak away, speak against or walk away from, you know, hate speech. So that, and, and people, that's a great point, Steve, you know what, that won't be tolerated on this, on this uh, show either. So if you have anything like that to say, you know, either, either, either stand in, stand up for something good or, or leave me out of it. I won't be participating in any any sort of hatred or destructive communication myself either. That's a great boundary. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Oprah uh, said many years ago, um, why, when she was asked about why that she never has like the KKK or anything yeah, on her yeah. show, and she said the best way to deal with that is to not give them a platform. So. That's it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that won't be happening here. But I'm so grateful that you came to share with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your unique and wonderful experience, Steve. I think that um, more people need to understand that this is the way it is, even, even here in Canada, and that we need to really start teaming together to make positive changes. So thank you for lending your voice, your experience, and your story to that today, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Autumn. Thank you so much for listening today. You can sign the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion petition at www.change.org forward slash safe culture. If you'd like more information about the WGD People Who Inspire podcast, you can email WGD People Who Inspire 
at gmail.com or look for me on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. I'm Autumn Rock, your host, and I have signed the Safe Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Pledge. Have you?